Um, we're going to explore the idea of the resurrection together. Uh, because is there a more unbelievable in the scriptures than someone rising from the dead? Is there a more contested truth in the world? Or dare I say, is there a more powerful truth in the world? Why is it so important that Jesus is raised from the dead? And if we can kind of uh, put ourselves in that frame for a moment, even if he somehow was, what's that got to do with my life now? Well, that's the big question I think that we address on Easter Sunday, that the resurrection addresses that we're going to think about together. Uh, See, if on Good Friday we were given the news that because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, he willingly takes the penalty for our own evil, what the Bible calls sin, uh, then on Easter Sunday we realise why this is the best news ever. And we're going to use a verse, which is just another word for a section from the Bible, uh, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 12. And you might think it's a bit strange why we're doing that, but that's a letter in the Bible written to the church about 20 years after Jesus died. I think it's going to help us to understand Jesus' resurrection a little bit better and the implications for Jesus' resurrection a little bit better. Because we're going to use it to think about what it says about our relationships, about our future, and about our significance as people. Let me read it out to you. It says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And you might think, what on earth does that have to do with the resurrection? But the answer is everything. Uh, But I'm going to explore together uh, that part which talks about knowing and being known. Uh, See, there's something in us, and I'm sure you'll agree, that longs for relationships. Even if we are a bit more of an you know, introverted type of person, you can't be by yourself forever. There's something in us that makes us want to be involved with other people, even if it might only be a little bit. We still want to be involved. We want to, uh, we're not just like a busybody either, you know, the type that just wants to know what's going on for their own sake, but actually involved and make a difference to someone else's life. We want to matter to other people, don't we? And we want other people to matter to us. In fact, I would say that this longing in us is so strong that it causes us to do things that in our own right minds we would never do but for that wanting or having that relationship with a person. I don't just mean romantic relationships, of course. I mean of all descriptions. Uh, You know, it's a powerful thing. Let me tell you a story. I'm not sure if I'm authorized to tell this story, but anyway... Here it comes. I was in my uh, mid to late high, high school. can't remember. 16, let's say. And my friends and I got into a hobby, if you can call it that, called draining. Has anyone here ever heard of draining? Sally's put up her hand. Mark! Wow. I'm going to have words with you afterwards. <laughs> it's not boys, young boys, who are clean to clean the kitchen sinks and bathrooms. It's going into stormwater drains under the city, which is a vast network of tunnels, and exploring them. Uh, There's hills and kind of things that you slide down, and it's pitch black, and it's very dangerous, so I don't recommend it. Uh, I still, and you know, the storm, there's a draining community, would you believe? And they, each of the drains, the big drains in Sydney, all have names. Uh, My favourite one was White Castle over in Maroubra. There's also a good one in Ride called Eternity. Uh, 
The thing is, who in their right mind would go draining? But when you get a group of 16-year-old boys together with nothing better to do on a Saturday night, that's when you go draining. <laughs> it's the peer pressure, isn't it? It's that relationship uh, glue that kind of puts us together, a common thing with high risk. Uh, but it might not be a craziest example as draining. Uh, it's not for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, it might be family expectations uh, that causes us that kind of peer pressure. Uh, maybe you come from a ha family with high expectations. You know, your parents have sacrificed so much uh, for you that you need to do better. And it might be that your parents who you live with, it might be that they're now grandparents uh, with your their own grandchildren or yourself. Or it might be fitting in at work uh, and wanting to do things that you otherwise wouldn't do so that you're not unfairly disadvantaged. Or maybe it's that urge to find that special someone that we become so fixated on and we abandon other relationships and other things, if only we could find that person. And I, that's pretty common, I think. That's a common human thing. But the strange thing about it all, if we just kind of take a step back and think about it, is as much as we want to know people and be known by people, we actually hide parts of ourselves when we go through that process. A classic scenario, right? I'm going for the controversial ones here. Uh, dating someone, okay? Uh, I'm a guy, so I'm gonna give this example from a male perspective. It's probably pretty uh, uh, stereotypical, but take that as a, for a, with a grain of salt. Say there's a guy interested in a girl, right? And somehow, I don't know what, you, you pulled the swift, you managed to get her to kind of be interested and they, you agree to meet her and she agrees to meet you. And the big day comes around and so you've done so much to kind of get to this moment, you need to make a good impression, right? So you dress nicely, you groom your hair, maybe trim your beard if you've got one, uh, chuck on some cologne, dare I say. And then, uh, you know, I've even heard of people who actually just do a bit of weightlifting before the session to actually appear bigger, would you believe? Um, I'm not kidding, it's not a joke, people do that. Uh, and I know people do that. And that's all beforehand, right? That's before you see the person. Uh, you know, during the meeting together, you actually try your hardest. You know, you try to be a nice person. You try to kind of be cool. You try to knock stuff up. Uh, you try to be, I'm talking from a male perspective, you know, a gentleman, winsome and clever, and say something that you would never say otherwise. In short, you're trying to be everything that you're not normally, aren't you? <laughs> you're trying to kind of impress this person, and, and of course that's normal. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. But it's funny, isn't it? The way that we kind of engage in relationships, we want to be in these relationships, but we actually feel like we have to hide part of who we are in order to make those relationships happen. Do you see the irony? You want to get to know this person who you're meeting up with, I gather. You want to get to know him or her better, uh, you know, see what they're like, but you're hiding what you're like. And I'm using a scenario from... Uh, a dating world, it's not just in that world that these things happen. Think about job interviews, CVs, right? Classic case. Um, you know, instead of telling the truth, we kind of push it to the limit so it's just believable or we're just not lying uh, with our work experience and whatever else we put on there. Uh, but if you think about an ideal situation, wouldn't it make sense? I know it never happens, I'm not naive. But wouldn't it make sense for uh, a company and a prospective employee to kind of reveal both their strengths and weaknesses uh, so that the best result occurs? 
They're just two examples. There's so many more. We do it in families. Uh, we do it in work scenarios. We do it with friends. We're actually scared about people truly knowing us. And that's where I think our text today comes in and it has something to say about this. You see, we can see and know things, people and other things about God's created world, but it's actually an indirect way of knowing. It's a dim way of knowing. It's not full. And it speaks into how we feel and experience relationships today, both with each other and, importantly, with God as well. Uh, see, the, the verse tells us that we see in an indirect and a hazy way. I remember a couple of years ago, I was driving down uh, to Shell Harbour. Now, originally, I'm, I kind of spend most of my time in South, but there's a few cold mornings where I've woken up here in Cherrybrook. I've been here for about three months. Well, there's a bit of fog, and I dare say we, we must get a decent amount in winter. Am I right or not? Some people say yes, yeah, especially if you head up north a bit. Anyway, so my southern connection, if you are heading down towards Wollongong Way, you can get a lot of fog. And I remember this one night, uh, I was leading youth group with my friend, and we decided to go for a fishing trip that weekend, making our way down on Friday night at about 10 o'clock, and the fog was so thick we couldn't even see one metre ahead of us on the motorway. And so you have to turn your hazard lights on, you have to slow down really slowly. We are going about 40, and it took a long time to get to our destination, but we got there, uh, but we couldn't see. It was kind of hazy. There was something between us and what we were trying to get at. Or how many times have you had a shower and you forgot to turn on the fan or the, the demista and, you know, it's just fog everywhere and you can't even see yourself in the mirror. And so I think this verse is kind of giving us that image of how we relate to each other and more importantly for today's purposes, how we relate to God. Uh, we still want to be involved with people, but it's a kind of an indirect way. Uh, we still want to matter. We still want to try and form relationships and bonds and flourish in this world by making it a better place. But something seems to stop it happening fully. Uh, and we look at the world around us and we see that it's broken. You know, relationships twisted for selfish reasons, maybe emotional or, f emotional or physical manipulation. Uh, you know, what kind of warped view of relationships... Uh, do we have when our closest relationships are generally often the ones in whom we see these twisted relationships develop? Domestic violence, family dramas, children and parents not getting on. Uh, they might not always be severe, even though they might happen often enough, but it does happen, doesn't it? Or how often do you see people being used or manipulated or taken for a ride? And when it comes to these things, there's two kind of views. You might be an optimist and think we're just getting better as humans. We're going to develop and we're going to get better. Or you might be a pessimist and you might think things are only going to get worse. But I think we're actually all somewhere in between. Sometimes we get better and sometimes we get worse. So why do we have this longing for something that's so warped, something that's not perfect? You know, is there some kind of... Um, Something inbuilt in us that makes, it, makes us want what's bad for us. You know, maybe it's a bit like chocolate. You know? Can't help but have a piece, especially this Easter time, and heaps of it. Isn't it funny how the eggs are so small, but they're solid, and you can just have so many of them, and then you realize, oh, wow, <laughs> that was a lot of chocolate. And we know it's bad for us, but we still kind of do it. But as our verse says, 
Maybe it's just because we don't actually get the full picture. You see, the Bible tells us that all these good things are warped by sin. That's the Bible's way to describe rejecting God. It tells us that we're at fault for this stuff, that we have taken something good and made it bad. And I mean in a general sense. I'm going to use an example. The classic example is from Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve. Uh, in fact, they're the Bible's relation, example for what relationships should have been like. In Genesis, uh, that first book of the Bible, we're told that they cared for each other and that they ruled together over God's good creation. But when sin comes, when they choose to reject God and listen to themselves, they turn on each other and they blame everyone else for their problems. Eve blames Adam. Uh, sorry, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Sound familiar? Blaming other people. And you see, relationships, that's only the, uh, which is such a key thing about being human, it's actually only part of the problem. Think about other things like poverty. How can there be poverty in an advanced world like ours? See, the issue isn't actually having enough resources, but how we, get, how we share them. You know, how, think about this. How can we as educated, forward-thinking people in Australia tolerate the abuse to other people, uh, even as they come to our shores or in other countries? Or how can we be such a litigious society? If you were here on Friday, you would have heard the Guinness World Record holder for, lit for litigation. He had over 4,000 cases. Uh, a society that focuses on the negative rather than the positive. You know, we expect legal problems. I'll give you another example. Uh, we've been looking for new therapists for our son, Thomas, since we moved. Uh, he needs a speechy, he needs an OT, and he needs a physio, and he needs a pediatrician. And, uh, you know, we've moved a, wide, a fair way away, and it's not viable to see his old therapists. But one such organisation, which has all of them as part of their organisation, was highly recommended to us by key members, doctors of a neurology team. And... Uh, I'm not going to tell you what the organisation is because it doesn't paint them in a good light. But they insisted that we sign something called a service agreement. Right? And the service agreement said you must do, regardless of what you think of us, you must do ten, or at least pay for 10 sessions with each therapist uh, if we're going to see you as a patient. Uh, we rejected the agreement and we rejected them because we don't think that's in our son's best interest. You can't make that decision <laughs> uh, that quickly. And I think, and it made me think, why do they have a service agreement in the first place? Like, our son needs a therapy. We're willing to pay them for it. Uh, why do we need a service agreement? And I think it's because people don't take these kinds of commitments seriously. Uh, they don't honour what they say or what they what they or other people's time. And you see, if they did, such a service agreement wouldn't be necessary from the perspective of the business. And I think it's just typical of what we experience today. Everywhere we see things that are good, they become bad. Things that are not right. I've been painting a very negative picture at the moment, but bear with me, it'll get better. You see, I think all these problems exist uh, because we have no confidence in people to do what's right. All these problems exist because deep down, the order of things, like the way we relate to people, it's just become so damaged. They exist because we really don't want it to be true. But we know it is, and so we need to account for it. 
And all these problems, the Bible tells us, are caused by sin. Our text from 1 Corinthians is right when it tells us that we only know in part and we only see indirectly. I'll, I'll tell you why. If you can tell something is not right, by logical definition, that must mean there is something right to which the thing that's not right points to. If there's an imperfect relationship, then there must be a perfect relationship somewhere. If there's a problem over here, then in order for us to identify it as a problem, there must be a perfection somewhere. And the resurrection is actually God's answer to those things. You see, God's answer to to that problem of brokenness, of uh, imperfect things, and in fact every other problem is indeed the resurrection, because the resurrection speaks into this world, it speaks into our relationships And it speaks into your life and mine. Let me share with you why. You see, Jesus' death on the cross, when you look at it, it looks like a failure, doesn't it? Who would believe in someone who was killed? Who would believe in a dead God? In fact, that's why many people uh, don't believe in him, especially in the time of Jesus. It's why the disciples when they realized Jesus was going to die, they all abandoned him and they fled. But the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead, shows that he has proof of victory over death. It shows that he has the power of sin, that he has defeated death, and it doesn't have the final say. The Bible tells us that it sets him up as the king of the world as he works to right all those wrongs which we kind of explore together. And he does this as through his people, as they witness to him in the world and as they serve others. But again, in an imperfect way, is our own witness to Jesus. But the more complete way that he will do this is when the Lord Jesus returns again, which the Bible talks about as the day of the Lord. You see, the resurrection is God's no to death and to the end of existence at death. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian believer, we actually have a guaranteed future. It's guaranteed because Jesus is alive, not just as a sign or some kind of symbol, but as what's going to happen for God's people when he returns. It's a guarantee. And so you might think, so what? What has that got to do with us today? Let me ask you a question. And it might impinge on others, some more than others. But how do you feel about death? How do you feel about uh, losing everything when you die? Because that's, we explored Jesus' death on Friday. It doesn't matter what we live for, whether it's love, relationships, or happiness. See, the popular view of the world says that all these things, when we die, they come to nothing. But Jesus says no. Relationships matter. What we do matters. See, what does our verse tell us? That we know only in part, but then we will know in full. See, when the verse is talking about then, it's talking about the time of the future resurrection, when Jesus returns. Then we'll be truly in those most perfect relationships. Not like the imperfect way that we operate now with hurt, with pain, with lies, and we will know people fully just as we will be fully known. But not only will we know people, not only will we be known by people, but even better, 
will be known and fully known, and we will know God himself. So the resurrection of Jesus actually becomes deeply personal for us. But it's not just a true thing that is going to happen and is a personal thing. It's actually a really good thing. See, the Bible teaches us that the resurrection on the last day will be like the best wedding ever. It uses a metaphor of a bride and groom and a wedding celebration. Uh, and the wedding's going to be between Jesus and his church, which is just another way of saying the people who are Christians, people who've put their faith in Jesus. I want us to picture in our minds the best celebration that you've been to, and if you can't, I'm going to tell you my one. Uh, I remember at our wedding, when Sal and I got married, which will actually be 10 years ago in June, uh, a relative said to me that uh, he was trying to eat all the food that he could get when the first kind of courses came out. Because, you know, we've all been to the wedding, I think, where maybe there's not enough food or it might be good, but we're still so hungry afterwards. Uh, And so he thought, you know, I don't know what I'm in for. So as soon as he saw food, he just kind of ate as much as he could. Uh, And his kids weren't into the food, so he ate theirs as well. And uh, we're Greek, right? Well, I'm Greek, I should say. Food was not going to be a problem, at least the quantity of it. Uh, so the funny thing is the, the waiters kind of brought out some hors d'oeuvres and he thought it was an entree and so he ate as much as he could of that. Then they brought out the entree which he thought was main and he ate as much as he could of that. And then he brought out the main and the irony is he couldn't eat a single bite of it because <laughs> he had stuffed himself uh, with the earlier food. And I do have his permission to tell this story by the way, although I'm not naming him. <laughs> um, and all he could say to me uh, at the wedding itself is that how awesome the food and the company and the celebration were. And I don't think it's anything special about uh, my wedding or our wedding in particular, but that's just, you know, weddings tend to be like that. It doesn't matter if it's a wedding, whatever the celebration is. Uh, And that's the kind of level of enjoyment that will be maxed at the resurrection, that revelry. So we have a guarantee, a guaranteed personal relationship, an absolute maximum excellence and enjoyment. See, these are the things that the resurrection brings us. These are the things which, gives us, which we have future hope for, which is guaranteed through Jesus' death, through his resurrection, and he's promised that people who put their faith in him, people who believe in Jesus, will be resurrected to experience these things too. But there's one more important aspect that I want to talk about. Because I knew this woman uh, back at uni once. You know, you tend to meet those kinds of people who have a bit kind of odd views or just different views from your own. And you see, she was convinced that the Bible was all about inner spirituality, that you couldn't read anything as though it happened, even from the historical pages of the Bible, like the Gospels, but all of it was all just kind of a big metaphor about what we're like and inner spirituality. Uh, So I remember this example fondly. We were sitting in a lecture hall. We should have been listening. It was tax law or something. I'm not listening to that. And uh, she was telling me that uh, she, the, the feeding of the 5,000, I don't know if you've heard that story in the Bible, uh, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. And she was sharing her opinion of this story. And she said to me that the actual miracle that occurred there was not the multiplication of the bread and the fish, which the story tells us is the case, but it was actually the miracle of sharing. Okay, that this boy shared his lunch and then everyone else was inspired to share their lunch too. And so because everyone shared, you know, there was enough to go around. There was no 
miraculous multiplication of the food. And that's what she said. That's just one example of what the Bible's uh, like. And so the idea is, it's trying to get us to be just better people. Uh, you know, have peace inside of us and relate well to the people we come across. You know, have harmony and goodwill towards others. Now, I don't want to uh, say that those things are not good because it's great to have inner peace and, you know, have harmony and goodwill towards others. But it would be severely mistaken to think that the Bible is about the miracle of that story, is about sharing. Because what does that have to say about our lives except for be nice? Right? If it's just about inner peace and, and kind of spirituality and, and do good, we don't need anyone to tell us that. We just know that we should be doing good. We don't need a resurrection for that. We can work it out by ourselves. Uh, did you know popular thinkers, I'm sure you do know, in fact, popular thinkers said, say lots of stuff about Christianity. They say Christianity is for wimps. Uh, they say that it's just wish fulfillment, that it's a crutch for people who can't live independently. And you know, if they would be right if you have the same view as my friend from uni does. That it's just about ourselves and about our inner uh, doing good, our inner spiritualness. But the resurrection is not just a spiritual awakening. It's so much more. You see, later on in 1 Corinthians, where that verse that we're thinking about today comes from, in chapter 15, the author, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. See, he's saying if Jesus hasn't been physically raised from the dead, then Christianity is useless. We shouldn't be here. There's no point in preaching about it. No point believing in it. No point reading the Bible. And if that's the case, then those popular thinkers would be right. And we see that, I think, in that kind of uh, very flaccid type of Christianity, which is just about inner peace or whatever it is, or just being better. But what's the point? Without the physical resurrection, there's no guarantee, there's no personal relationship, and there is no excellence either. But we've just heard the Bible's own witness about itself, a powerful one at that. See, if you believe in Jesus, you can't help but believe in the physical resurrection from the dead. And, uh, you know, in my role as a pastor, I often get to talking with people about Jesus and about Christianity. And if I ask them, you know, why don't you believe? They'll often reply with something uh, that they won't believe because they don't like the message of Christianity. Uh, for example, it's teaching maybe on alcohol or relationships or sex Whatever it is, right? doesn't matter what it is. There's so many varied views. And I wonder um, if that's you, and you might be here and have that view, or if you know people like this, it's worth thinking. Are, are we just saying that? Are you just saying that because there are parts of the Bible you don't like, right? If there's parts of the Bible you don't like, are you saying that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead? Because that's the logical thing that such an argument leads to. Just because some part of the Bible you don't like, it has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Paul, who wrote this book of 1 Corinthians, do you know he began by not liking Christians? In fact, that's an understatement. He was offended by them. He hated them. He even approved of their killing when he had the opportunity. He thought they were blaspheming and trashing his way of life because of what Christians believed and taught. But one day, 
he realised that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. That's the only thing he understood about Christianity. And that made him do the logical thing to do in that situation. Because of that one truth, he changed every other opinion he had about Christianity. He had to change his whole attitude. It didn't matter what he liked or what he didn't like because it offended him. But because he realized Jesus rose from the dead, he actually changed his views to actually believe those things which initially offended him. And did you know that that man became uh, the, the person who wrote most of the New Testament in the Bible? That's the person who wrote most of the New Testament in the Bible. He was the best Christian missionary ever. And do you know the only thing that can make sense of that? It's the fact that Jesus rose from the dead physically. That's the only thing that can account for why this man had such a drastic change. And not just this man, but many Christians in history. You see, when you find out a truth about something that's not only true but also good, you actually change your attitude as a result. It's not the other way around. You know, use an illustration from a doctor. Say they tell you, you need surgery immediately to remove a tumour. You might not like the surgery. You will not like the surgery. But the fact is you need it, so you change your attitude. And you go with it because of the facts and because it's going to be good for you. You see, that's what the resurrection is for us. You might not like it. You might not want it to be true. But the clear and overwhelming evidence is that it is. You see, that the fact that there is a resurrection actually proves, like I said earlier, that we do only know and think in part. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need for it, would there? But not only does it show us that we don't have the full picture, but there is something more and something better. You see, the resurrection tells us that Jesus matters because he died on the cross, yet he was raised on the third day to bring us peace with God. And it tells us that our future is secure because Jesus already rose again. He has proven what is to come. And we can be part of that, did you know? We can be part of this excellent, personal and guaranteed future. All we have to do is believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead to forgive you from your sins and reunite you with God. It's why we have hope of, as Christians. It's why when, we, uh, when people are despairing, the logical conclusion for people is not an option for us. We don't need to despair when things go, don't go our way or when things go wrong because Jesus' resurrection tells us that our future is going to be great because we're looking forward to a day that we're fully known and that we're known fully and we ourselves fully know. See, the resurrection, it tells, God tells you that you matter. That's what the resurrection means to you and to God. He's saying, you matter to me and I want the best for you. Well, we're going to sing about God saying to us that you matter with a song, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I'm going to invite our band up and they're going to lead us in that. It's the story of the gospel which we celebrate this Easter.